From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Good afternoon and thank you for being here on this Wednesday. Coming up, we've got our travel news with Claire Newell, as we do every Wednesday, and also talking about a warning that is coming out of BC Children's Hospital. This having something to do with a new challenge that is on TikTok and some other social media sites. We are starting, though, talking about the cabinet shuffle. Two-thirds of the portfolios have changed hands. That all unfolded this morning with the major cabinet shuffle. Prime Minister Trudeau bringing in seven rookie ministers and moving out some of the key ministers. Joining us to talk a bit more about this is Matt Gurney, co-founder of TheLine.ca. Matt, great to have you back on the show. Great to have you here. My house is currently overrun by children, and I've retreated to sitting inside my car like a grown-up. <laughs> well, I was going to ask if you were stuck in traffic again, because I think you were stuck on a very <laughs> slow-moving highway last time we chatted. So I like that you're still in your car. It's, it's becoming a, yeah, the, it's a the, theme. Yes, it's a theme for sure. Well, well, thank you for, for doing this. Let's start with some of the bigger names. I'm sure it wasn't a surprise to anybody uh, that Marco Mendicino was shuffled out, but I know you You've been commenting on this as well, the justice minister and kind of what happened there. Well, I mean, you asked the question and I, and I wish I could answer it. Um, to the best of my knowledge, the justice minister, former justice minister himself doesn't know why he was shuffled out. Um, I, I honestly don't have an explanation there. I mean, if you were to have asked me a week ago, who is the most likely minister to unceremoniously get dumped back into obscurity? Marco Mendocino would have been top of the list. If you'd asked me who would have been near the bottom of the list, I probably would have said David Lametti. Uh, so I honestly don't know what's happening there. There's no particular scandal that he's been implicated in. There's no particular tire fire on his watch right now. There's complicated stuff like medical uh, assistance and dying and you know controversial stuff, but no active screw-ups by the minister. And, you know, he is, uh, an, well, was, I guess, an important voice in the Quebec caucus for the Liberals, and we all know how important Quebec is to them. I, I'll confess to you I'm at something of a loss here. I cannot explain that. Well, I'm sure there will be a, a lot of questions uh, and hopefully we'll get s- some more details or some more insight to, into that uh, in the coming days. Uh, let's talk a little bit as well about Anita Anand and she now going to become the head of Treasury, uh, shifting out of a very high profile portfolio as well. What are your thoughts on that move? You know, I have a smart thought and I have a cynical thought and I'm going to give you the smart thought first because I, I like to lead with the better side. Um, she did a great job at uh, defense, apparently. Um, she was well regarded after her time at procurement. And uh, you, you played a clip coming in, or, the, or at least I heard one in the news of the prime minister talking about, you know, tough economic times for Canadians. Arguably, his two best ministers are Christian Freeland and Anita Anand. And now one of them is at finance and the other is at treasury. This is very much, you could say, part of a renewed focus on economics uh, at the very top of the Liberal government. That's the charitable interpretation. The other interpretation is that the bubbling leadership campaign Anand has been running in the background less and less quietly over the last uh, year or so has drawn the ire of the PMO, and they've sent her off to an important but relatively obscure uh, uh, Ottawa office. 
she's not going to be traveling the world standing in front of a fleet of tanks anymore. She's going to be sitting in her office in Ottawa telling all her colleagues, no, they can't have the money they want. So if you were kind of going along that cynical line, then would that could you read into that the fact that Christia Freeland wasn't touched in this shuffle, that she is unscathed, that her ambitions wouldn't be the same or or, or that she's hiding them better? <laughs> That's funny. Uh, my own personal sense, and I'm sorry, this isn't a direct answer to your question, but I, I think it gets to the same place. I don't think any, uh, I don't think Christopher Freeland is going to be the next leader of the Liberal Party, and I think um, a lot of people have probably known that before Christopher Freeland did. What I'm honestly wondering is whether or not Christopher Freeland herself has realized that sometime in the last little while. She's popular in her Toronto base. She doesn't have any other natural constituency anywhere in the Liberal Party, and she doesn't do well in Quebec. You know, close to Bay Street is not necessarily the uh, the resume you want to lead a party in during tough economic times when there's a lot of middle class and lower uh, anxiety out there. I don't think Freeland is as much of a threat to Justin Trudeau as even Freeland herself might have thought she was even two years ago. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, let's talk about the new faces. There are seven uh, rookie faces, new faces that have been called up to cabinet. Is this part of that renewal that the prime minister talked about uh, that, uh, I guess, the refocusing and uh, cr- trying to bring in some some fresh faces to uh, this cabinet? Yeah, I guess. Uh, look, I mean, the reality of it is the prime minister had to bring some people up. There were some people, as you've already said, who've announced that they were leaving and they needed to be replaced. And it, the prime minister might have been completely uninterested in renewal, but when a bunch of your existing guys tell you they're retiring, you got to listen to them. There was obviously Marco Mendocino, who was months overdue for replacement, ha- had to bring in someone to take over his job. So you needed to bring in new people here. I guess it's a renewal agenda, and I'm going to have to spend some time learning a little bit about some of these new faces, because i got to be honest with you, I didn't even know some of their names before this morning. I have some homework to do on that front. But I, 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 gotta, I think in terms of like renewal and putting a fresh face on cabinet and stuff, I think this is the sort of thing prime ministers and their advisors spend a lot of time thinking and talking about that no normal human being spends any time thinking and talking about, and... I I cannot for the life of me think that any problem that Justin Trudeau had yesterday has been solved for him today by bringing in these new people, with the possible exception of the problem of Marco Mendocino. Right, which and like you said, there were so many people wondering, and it was his the way of handling the Paul Bernardo case, his response to some of those questions. Had he been shuffled out on his own, I don't know that anybody would have really been surprised by that or taken aback by that. So is it is it strange at all that he was part of this bigger shuffle and not singled out? Um, I mean, I, well, I won't say it's strange. I think this is kind of what I, I would have predicted. In fact, I think I did predict this a few months ago when I had said that Mendocino will be shuffled out the moment the government has an opportunity to do it in a way where it doesn't look like they're reacting to opposition criticism, because that would be tantamount to admitting that they made a mistake. And this government never does that. The prime minister is very, very good at apologizing for things he didn't do 100 years ago. He's not so great at accepting responsibility for the things he's doing right now. And that's been part of him uh, the entire time he's been in office. Um, I, I will say that I think to your point, though, a week ago, I would have guessed, yeah, they're going to dump Mendocino, they're going to figure out who's retiring, and they'll 
they'll make a few other updates and trims accordingly. The kind of wholesale change we did see today, I confess, it did surprise me. One of the other uh, ministries, so uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, Bill C-18 that I know you and I have spent a lot of time talking about and looking at and certainly uh, pointing out the flaws in that bill. Uh, Was that under Canadian Heritage? Was that Pablo Rodriguez? It was. That's a Heritage Ministry bill under uh, Pablo Rodriguez. Mr. Rodriguez, having now saved Canadian media, is off to go build us some high-speed trains. Oh, <laughs> Fabulous. I'm sure I, I, it's going to work out. It's <laughs> great for him there. Uh, and a, a new minister then, is it Pascal Saint-Ange, the Minister of Canadian Heritage, I suppose, yep. uh, c- continuing that road. Might we see any changes there, do you think, with Bill C-18, or, or that's that's kind of too far under the radar? Uh, no, I mean, I wouldn't be shocked to see some changes on the overall stance the government uh, would like to have. Here's the problem with C-18. I think the messaging the government has has very much changed over the last even couple of weeks. I think there's a growing realization that Google and Meta are not bluffing, that they are serious about exiting the Canadian market because of C-18. And I think despite ample warning, the government somehow did not understand that, or at least did not believe that. I think a new minister could, in theory, be an opportunity to to soften the tone a bit, to have a bit of a reset, a fresh start, try to smooth things over a little bit. But the problem is that C-18 has passed. It's law. It exists, right? And I, I, it's, I, so unless the new minister is prepared to actually rescind the legal legislation that has been passed by her government and by her predecessor, I don't see anything meaningful changing from, from Google or Meta's point of view. I wouldn't be surprised if, if Minister St. Ong doesn't go to them and basically say, hey, guys, like, hey, I'm just getting up to speed on this. Let's have a conversation. Let's see if we can hammer out a deal here. And I wouldn't be equally surprised if Meta certainly and possibly Google goes, no. No, that's uh, definitely a, a scenario that could unfold. Uh, Matt, what do you think this means uh, moving forward? And I know a, a more cynical, or, or I have been hearing this from more cynical people, uh, making the reference of, of, of rats jumping from a sinking ship. That when we started to learn about uh, the number of ministers that would not be seeking re-election. Uh, the Prime Minister trying to spin this as this is renewal, this is us focusing on things that matter most to Canadians, which you could ask, well, weren't you focusing on that anyway, but what changes now between now and the next election? Yeah, I think, look, everybody's spinning, right? Like, you know, the the uh, Liberals' opponents are spinning this as panic and exhaustion and imminent doom. Uh, the Liberals are spinning this as the best cabinet since yesterday, which was also the best cabinet. There's a lot of spin going on here. I think what we're looking at is something in the middle, and I think the Conservatives don't want to, I mean, other opposition parties, but certainly the conservatives, they don't want to admit that this kind of cabinet renewal is not that uncommon, particularly when you're eight years into a mandate here. It's not that rare to see cabinet ministers who have been in office as ministers for eight years, and they're in their 70s, to decide they want to go do something else. So I think the novelty of this has been exaggerated a bit. But I also do think, uh, from the Prime Minister on down, right to the random people tweeting me today about this, or Xing me, if we call it that now, there is a refusal among liberals at every level to, I think, admit honestly where they have made mistakes. And I said just a couple of minutes ago, if this was something that someone else had done 100 years ago, the Prime Minister would have no problem tearfully apologizing for it. When it comes to his own record in office, 
never admits a mistake. I think what we are seeing here is an admission of mistakes, of errors, of exhaustion, of missteps. It shouldn't take something as catastrophic as the, the year the liberals have had politically for them to actually admit they need to make a change. But this is a weakness they have. They always hang on too long, and they are always too slow to react. They will never admit it, but a government that actually thought things were going well for them would not make the kind of changes they saw today. I don't think it means they're doomed. I just think it means they're as behind as usual when it comes to admitting there's a problem. Matt, always good to chat with you. Thank you for uh, heading out to your car office to do this once again, (laughs) and we will talk to you again soon. The joys of parenting in the 21st century. Good to come on. It is Wednesday afternoon, and that means it's time to check in with Travel Best Bets founder and president, Claire Newell. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. It feels like dinner time for me because I've had so many interviews today, <laughs> including the one with you. But you know what? It's all about this whole electronic travel authorization that's coming into play in Europe. Yes. But it's not coming into play until next year. But there's a lot of chatter about it. And obviously, some um, newswire must have come out. This is, um, for those who haven't followed along, um, the European Union is um, planning to put in an entry and exit system that will was supposed to start actually May of this year. Then it was pushed back to November of this year. And now it's not coming until 2024. It's going to be seven euros per person. And when you get it, if you are between 18 and 70, you'll need to get it. It's valid for three years. And it's, uh, like I said, seven euros per person. Um, I think it's going to be a bit of a hiccup for people. But the demand for Europe we're seeing this year, Jill, uh, Someone who someone knows is in Europe at any given moment from from where I sit. So um, I think this will be, you know, I don't think the seven euros is going to prevent people from going, but this is it's a step that people will have to take next year. They're going to do uh, a bunch of collection of data. So your name, the type of travel document that you use, obviously that will be your passport, biometric data, and then the date and the place of where you're entering and exiting in Europe. What's, what's more complicated though, Jill, is that the UK, which is not part of the EU anymore, is planning their own ETA, electronic travel authorization, mm. sometime um, next year as well. And it's not going to be the same price and it's not going to be the same validity. So it'll be, they haven't even set the price, but they said somewhere between five pounds and 20 pounds per person. 20 would be a stretch, but yeah. anyway. Um, and it'll only be valid for two years whereas the one for the EU is going to be valid for three years. Just keep in mind, if you get one of these, it, they expire when your travel document expires. So if your passport expires, you have to get a new one. Um, the other thing that's kind of annoying about the one in the UK is that even if you're just going through the UK, and lots of people do, they fly to London and then get a connecting flight onto Europe, you still have to do this step. So if you're doing that, you have to get two of them. That just answered my like, question. Did it? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it's a real pain. One thing that I should just remind people um, is that these types of things are not new. 
you need an ETA to travel to places like New Zealand or Australia, and they're typically done online. You usually have to do them between 48 and 72 hours prior. If you don't do it, you may not get on the aircraft. So it's really important to know if you need one. Um, the other thing is, is that there are other things I see people getting tripped up on, Jill. I'm not getting a visa. So you may need to get a visa, which is different from an ETA, to go to places like Turkey or Egypt or India. And some you can do online, like they're called e-visas. Some you have to mail in all your documents, and nobody really likes to do that. And some you have to go in person, and you've got to um, meet with somebody and then get your visa. And you always have to pay for them, and it's definitely a process. Other things that I get uh, a lot of people caught on is the passport validity beyond the date that you leave their country. So even if you've got a valid passport, but it expires pretty quick, some places, unless you've got, say, three months, four months, six months validity, you you can't go. They, you, you must have that. And the others, of course, is something like a vaccine requirement, like yellow fever if you're going to certain places in Africa. But all of this just reminds me that if you are a traveler or you're going outside of Canada, you have to go to travel.gc.ca, which is the government's website. And you can put in the country you're visiting and it will come up with a tab that is actually called entry and exit requirements. So that's where you can you can check out because things can change. And the reason I say things can change is that someone that is very close to me almost didn't get on a flight to Seoul, Korea because you needed an ETA and it wasn't done before getting to the airport and the person checking uh, him in said, no, sorry, you need to have this. Luckily, he got there early enough and he got it processed like in the nick of time. You don't even need one now to Korea. So things can change. So just please earmark that if you are going. Again, travel.gc.ca. I think I sound like a broken record. And for anyone who's followed along with you and I, I've must said that probably a thousand times now. That's okay. (laughs) Uh, With the the ETA, when it does come in for for Europe and the UK, is it something people are going to have to go and get and do on their own? Or will it be part of when you're booking the, the trip? It just is part of that. Yeah, really good question. It actually is something that you do on your own. It's um, You do it electronically, you go to a website, you put in your details, and then uh, either a QR code or the, the ETA will, will come out. And it's really important that people remember that any documentation, whether it's an ETA, a visa, your passport, a nexus, vaccine requirements, it's your responsibility as a traveler to get that. It's not the airline's responsibility. It's not the travel agent. It's not the tour operator that you may have booked with. It's your responsibility. Um, So just that's why I think it's really important to make sure you're going to that website to, to check exactly what you need before you're before you're leaving. Very good advice. Let's talk about what is happening with Canadian Airlines. We have been chatting about this the past couple of weeks. Still a lot of flight delays. Meh. I know. And according to some new stats that came out from um, an aviation data firm that I look to really often, it's called Cerium, about uh, 50% of Air Canada flights were on time in June and July. Uh, 36% of WestJet flights arrived within that 15-minute window of their scheduled arrival. The U.S. is actually doing better than we are. Um, they, they have an average of between... 60 to 80%, but Alaska Airlines and Delta had on-time rates of 80%. So 
it's I, I know it's not as bad as it was last uh, as it was last year. I mean, it was chaos last summer and things are getting better, but it's still rough. And so during the summer season, I'm always telling people go online to your airport or your airline to make sure your flight's on time before you head to the airport, because we are seeing lots of delays. Uh, unfortunately. All right. Not great, great news, uh, but there you go. Um, Dynamic pricing. What's happening with this in some of the airlines? Yeah. Okay. So dynamic pricing, for those who don't really understand it, it's, uh, you know, if um, demand increases, it's when prices will increase. And we saw this come into play in Disneyland. And it really, like, people were kind of all fussed about it. And this is something that Canadian airlines are starting to adopt. And basically, they become more profitable because the prices of things are flexible based on demand. So things like baggage fees, um, air, of course, airfare pricing has always been that way, but um, the, it'll all be affected by by the, the time, the time that you purchase. So if you're booking way in advance, you likely won't have uh, as high baggage fees or if you want to add on things like meals or seats but they're starting to do this for every little ancillary add-on that you may want to do. My reminder for this and to, the way to get around this is book early and do the add-ons like baggage or meals right when you're making the booking to avoid it. And I can tell you that it's by far the most expensive if you're doing it, you know, the time you're checking in. All right. That is, yeah, be prepared. I'm, I'm bad at that, but I'm, I'm trying <laughs> to get better at doing that and uh, not paying the higher fees, but that is good advice. Um, yeah. This is good news too, isn't it? The WestJet, uh, the winter schedule is getting a little bit bigger. Yeah, it is good news. We need, we need more. There's, um, there's some good news in this, especially for BC residents. For Sun Destinations, they will have uh, 85 daily departures on average to Sun Destinations. And together, WestJet and Sunwing will offer 230 nonstop routes from 26 communities. And there'll be 55 sun destinations, which is what Canadians love over the winter months, uh, fall and winter, actually. Um, they'll be to the U.S., Mexico, Caribbean, and Central America, which is right where we all want to go. Um, but Victoria to Los Cabos in this announcement will restart. That hasn't been uh, going since um, the pandemic. So that will start weekly, November the 9th. And Prince George to Puerto Vallarta also once a week. And that's restarting on December the 16th, right in time for the holidays. So um, if you are one of the people who love those nonstops from Victoria or Prince George, I think that's really great news because it's, it's often kind of convoluted and all those extra steps either getting to Vancouver, whether you're flying or ferrying or whatever you're doing. Um, there are also some year-round extensions in WestJet's uh, announcement that I thought was important. Vancouver to Atlanta will become year-round five times a week. Vancouver to Regina is a returning route, and Vancouver to Saskatoon, a returning route. So there is some good news, uh, certainly some some of the things that are coming back that were lost because of the pandemic. Finally, they've got enough staff and planes to be able to service them. And I wanted to touch on one other story before we get to the deals. And I promoted that we were going to talk about this because I know a lot of people listening do go on cruises. I'm curious if this is going to become a trend, though. And this is Amsterdam taking a pretty bold move when it comes to where cruise ships can, where they can actually access the city. 
Yeah, just this week, Amsterdam's municipality actually voted in favor of moving their key cruise line terminal out of the city center. So it's really close to the center. And this is obviously one of those situations we talked about over tourism and to limit the population. You and I chatted about the fact that they were um, trying to downplay the party city reputation. And they this is another, you know, a layer in there. At this time, there's no changes. Um, they have. There's no timeline on when or or even where this uh, cruise ship terminal will be relocated, but it's it's big news in the travel industry because more than a hundred cruise ships each year visit. In fact, this year they are going to see 114, and next year they're going to be. They're, well, they're scheduled to have almost 140 cruise ships in. Brings tons of money into that destination. So there'll be businesses that are unhappy with this, um, but you will still be able to get into Amsterdam. The cruise lines will still go there. It just won't be as close to the city center. So you'll have to you know, I don't know if you've cruised before, but if you're going to Rome, you're not getting into that city. You're going into a place that's about 45 minutes away. So hopefully it won't be 45 minutes away, but it certainly won't be in that city centre. Interesting move. Let's get people travelling. What deals do you have for us today? Well, I wanted to share one for Las Vegas. I thought it was cheap and cheerful. In November the 20th through until December the 12th. If you can go then, airfare and three nights hotel. It's actually a four-star hotel, Jill. $229. The taxes are almost the same. They're $198, but a really good buy if you have Vegas on the agenda and have been looking for a deal. Also, uh, for the first time, I am seeing an all-inclusive to Puerto Vallarta for fall under a thousand. So this is November 21st through until December 7th. There's only a few dates in that window, but airfare and seven nights in a four-star beachfront all-inclusive resort, $9.99. The taxes of $6.26. And then I thought I would share one to Honolulu, Hawaii. If you're looking for a, a bit of a fancy stay, this is um, a beachfront four-star hotel in Honolulu. Most aren't on the beach, um, but this is. It's a package that includes airfare and seven nights at a four-star beachfront hotel, November 14th through until December the 12th, 1369. The taxes of 338. And all the details are on the website. All right. Sounds great. Claire, thank you so much. And we'll talk to you again next week. Sounds great, Jill. Thank you. We've heard about internet challenges, social media challenges, oftentimes they're for a good cause. You'll think back a few years to the ice bucket challenge, and that was to raise money, to raise more awareness about Alzheimer's and things that can kind of get people involved and a fun way of spreading awareness. But sadly, there are also some challenges that are making the rounds that are extremely dangerous. And in one case, a teenager from North Carolina is recovering after suffering severe burns to almost 80% of his body. This was when the teen took on a TikTok challenge, and it has to do with fire. The mother of Mason Dark, she shared her son's story on Facebook, saying that the 16-year-old was playing with spray cans and a lighter, trying to make kind of a homemade blowtorch. And again, this was in response to a challenge that he had seen on TikTok, and he ended up 
up in the hospital in critical condition. Well, this challenge, though, is making the rounds. And that is why one of the doctors at BC Children's Hospital is speaking out. Dr. Sally Hines is the head of the Burns program there, also a pediatric plastic surgeon, and joins us now to talk more about this. Dr. Hines, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for the opportunity. What are you seeing as far as the increase in the number of burns coming into BC Children's and the severity? Yeah, so we see around a thousand burn-related visits at BC Children's Hospital every year. But what we've noticed in recent months is an increase in the severity of these injuries. And we'd like to draw attention to cases of children playing with fire um, and trying various fire-related challenges on social media platforms such as TikTok. Um, the, the point that I would really like to stress today is that even trying one of these challenges one time can have life-altering consequences, um, can lead to severe burns, and in some cases, loss of limbs um, or loss of life. And I know you can't go into the, the details of each case because of privacy, but are you hearing Absolutely. from from families or hearing from people when they're explaining what happened, that these are the results or that these burns are the results of these TikTok or other social media challenges? Yeah, it's, it's difficult um, to comment on, on the specifics, as you, as you said, because of patient privacy. But um, yes, we have, we have concerns about um, incidences of, of children playing with fire and in some of those cases it being motivated or, or driven by a fire challenge on social media. And is it a certain age group that you're seeing or is there, or is there an increase in one particular age group? Um, it tends to be older children and teens. Um, when it comes to the social media um, fire challenges, they're more likely to be connected with social media. Um, but we do see cases of younger children as well um, who are playing with, with fires. I understand as well that a lot of these challenges, they are challenges that in some way include fire, but they also include accelerants, which makes things even worse, which can also uh, mean clothing catches fire. Are, are you seeing yeah. burns coming in that, that that's the, the cause of them? We do see use of accelerants, um, such as alcohol or in some cases even gasoline. Um, and, and yes, it is a problem in that the, the injuries tend to be more severe when there's an accelerant used. Um, the fire gets out of control much more quickly. And again, I know there are, are privacy concerns, but do you get the impression, or uh, I'm, I'm guessing, and I know there have been cases in the States as well, but is it something that young kids and teens are doing that their parents really have no idea that these challenges are going around and that maybe there are, are kids in their family that are taking part? You know, it's, it's hard for me to comment on that specifically, sort of so how much the, the parents are aware um, but that's why I really wanted to speak out about this issue is to make sure that parents are aware that these challenges exist, these fire challenges on social media platforms like TikTok, um, so that they can speak to their kids about it um, and have that, that open discussion at home about the risks. I think when it comes to younger children, they're often unaware of the risks. And with older children, I think a lot of the times that social pressure um, you know, comes into play, the pressure to take risks and, and sort of show off. And I, I just really want families to have open discussions about how something that seems like a silly challenge, people laugh about it when they see these TikTok videos, 
can have absolutely devastating effects, and, and there are families that are living their worst nightmare as a result of these these types of, of challenges. Uh, because uh, as mentioned when I uh, introduced you, you are the head of the, the Burns program at BC Children's, uh, but you're also yes. a, a pediatric plastic surgeon. So I'm guessing that you have seen, like you said, families living their worst nightmares. Uh, you have seen some absolutely heartbreaking cases. And I, I, I would think it, it could potentially make it worse if you think or if if the reason behind it is because somebody was taking part in in a challenge that was put out on social media. I mean these cases are always devastating regardless of of what um, sort of triggered the event but I think the main thing is um, you know we try to focus on on burn prevention and and where we can make a difference and try to reduce the the incidence of these um, these severe burns. So yeah, I just I really want to just draw attention to it so that um, people can can talk about it and and you know have the awareness that this is an issue. Parents and caregivers can talk to their kids um, and spread the word. Is it is it more difficult for children as well in that I think anybody that's had a burn or has a family member or, or has been around somebody that has suffered from a burn knows how, how ex- extremely painful it can be in the recovery. Is it worse or is it more difficult for children to recover uh, when they are suffering from burns? Um, more difficult for children as opposed to adults, is that what you're asking? Yeah, does it does it have a bigger impact when when we're talking about these severe burns or larger burns with children? Um, there can be, um, particularly for, yeah, I mean for for children at at um, extremes of age, at at really young age in particular, um, they're more susceptible to becoming very sick from a burn. But children at any age with a large burn. Um, will be at risk of um, becoming sick, requiring care in an intensive care unit. Their their bodies go through a widespread, um, very dramatic inflammatory response that affects all the organ systems. They can become very sick. They require many dressing changes carried out in hospital, typically with anesthetic. Um, and in many cases, particularly with flame burns, which tend to be deeper, particularly with burns that have where an accelerant has been used, um, they often will require many surgeries in the form of skin grafting. Um, and the, the long-term effects of this are also, um, even for patients who survive these, these life-threatening injuries, um, you know, there's, there's many devastating long-term effects in terms of the burn scars. They have um, significant psychosocial implications and uh, also functional, have a tremendous functional impact on patients. And in particular for children, as they grow, um, the burn scars tend to become tighter where they cross joints, and so children are more likely to require more revisional surgery throughout their lives. Hmm. And, and you mentioned the, that you're speaking out or drawing attention to this as well, so that people know that this is happening, that you've seen the increase or the increase in severity at BC Children's. So, so again, kind of what advice do you have for parents about making sure they are aware of this or making sure they're talking to their kids about this? I mean, I think that that's exactly the point I want to make is just that education is the key to prevention. So having that open conversation with your your children and teens about what's on social media, about these fire challenges, and just about the real-life impact um, that these types of challenges um, have, the fact that they cause devastating burn injuries, you know, emphasizing that burns are 
um, exquisitely painful injuries that they require prolonged hospitalization, a lot of care from a specialized team, surgeries, they result in scars, in some cases loss of limbs, in some cases loss of life, I think just really emphasizing what the real risks are. Um, and in the case of younger children, making sure that that, that supervision is there, um, you know, although we're focusing specifically on children playing with fire and on, um, you know, the social media fire challenges, I also want to emphasize at this time of year that we do see um, campfire-related flame burns as well. So making sure that you're keeping children, um, particularly young children, away from campfires, keeping accelerants away and properly extinguishing the fires afterwards and acknowledging also that the even after a fire has been extinguished that it the coals the the area around it stays hot for a long period of time even days well it is uh, very good advice and timely advice dr hines thank you so much for joining us thanks so much for talking about this today yeah thank you so much i really appreciate um you know having the the opportunity to spread the word We've certainly covered a lot of stories that deal with shoplifting, whether it's a police force talking about an arrest made and somebody having more than 100 previous shoplifting arrests or encounters with police alleged to have shoplifted, or the more brazen story we saw recently of a couple allegedly stealing a TV right in the box, throwing it on the top of their car and driving away. That was all captured on video. They were arrested a short time later, but the stories go on and on, and numbers show that shoplifting is on the rise. Joining us now to talk a bit more about this is Greg Wilson, the Director of Government Relations in BC with the Retail Council of Canada. Greg, thank you so much for taking some time. Good afternoon. It seems like it's kind of going with inflation, not that that's excusing it in any way, but are you hearing from retailers and and seeing and hearing that this is becoming more and more of an issue? Yeah, I don't think we think it's related directly to inflation and rather more likely related to the pandemic. Um, It seems that since the start of the pandemic, there has been a dramatic increase in anxiety, and we see this reflected in a very significant increase in violence um, in retail stores. And, you know, this is what has us mostly concerned. And, of course, the financial loss that that occurs from shoplifting is borne by all Canadian consumers. When you talk about the behavior as well, because I understand, and we again have have covered stories about this. Not not only is it shoplifting, but it's also uh, this rather abrasive and, and abusive behavior that can be seen or witnessed against staff members, against cashiers. What are you hearing about the increase in that type of behavior? Well, the behavior increase is disturbing, and the difficulty we have is, you know, it makes it that much more difficult for store security and other people to take action to prevent the shoplifting. And so I think every Canadian consumer will will recognize that you see more security guards and other uniformed um, personnel in stores. That's certainly a change for us, but um, all of those security people are also threatened by some of the shoplifters who are not... um, are more aggressive. 
And like you said, this is something, uh, the abusive behavior is one thing, the financial loss for a store or a business, something uh, that they need to recoup those costs in some way. And when you talk about that, that it's something that kind of all consumers then pay the price, is that cost passed on? So it's costing Canadian retail billions and billions of dollars a year in losses. And, you know, retailers are in the business of making a profit you know it's rare that you can write off any of these losses and so those costs are passed on to the rest of the consumers and so in a way we're all paying through through when we're buying goods a small amount towards the cost of the goods stolen by others and even uh, I know the Canadian Federation of Independent Business has talked about this as well, that it, it's gone up. And just by survey, surveying their members and small business owners, uh, again, very concerned about employee safety, but also a huge increase, a double digit increase in theft that, that is just uh, pretty devastating to, to many of them. Our members tell us that the increase is about 300% in Western Canada over over the period prior to the pandemic. That, I mean, how do you continue operating a business and making a profit with a 300% increase in shoplifting? Well, the first thing you do is you take steps to try to decrease the losses through shoplifting. And, you know, unfortunately, um, we're all the rest of us are impacted by those measures. You know, the most common of those measures is an increase in store security, obviously, but there are other things. Small retailers who didn't have cameras now have to install cameras. Um, they have to have monitoring of those cameras. Um, increasingly, there are other things being done. Um, there's a lot of coverage at the moment about, you know, things like new barriers put into stores, um, you know, to prevent entry and exit other than through the through the uh, normal doors and through the checkouts and you know of examining receipts on the way out of stores and these are the measures that retailers are having to take in order to prevent the increase in shoplifting and fight the increase in shoplifting so we not only pay the financial cost of those increases we're paying for it in inconvenience and I, I know, and you mentioned this or touched on the measures and one of them too, with uh, some stores, some businesses keeping the doors locked. So you have to buzz or you have to knock and, and have somebody let you into the store. It, it does kind of, and I mean, people get, I think, why some businesses are doing that because people have literally walked in the doors, grabbed things and walked away. But it does take away from the experience of not being able to just say, be walking down the street and walk into a store because you've seen something. No, and I mean, now there are, you know, high-end retail stores that are asking customers to make an appointment to come and shop. That's not, uh, you know, so the all this theft is having an impact on our convenience and our enjoyment of shopping. Do you see it changing then? Like you say, this started during the pandemic and this kind of change in behavior and both the shoplifting and in some cases this abusive behavior towards the staff members. How do we, other than the measures to, to combat it when it happens, do you see it though, any potential way of it going back so this isn't happening, this isn't so rampant? Well, I mean, firstly, um, we'd like to see the federal government pass their legislation on repeat chronic offenders. That would be helpful. The province of BC has also called for the federal government to do that as well. We think that's a reasonable measure. Um, there are 
other things that governments and and um, you know particularly at the moment we understand that our friends in law enforcement are very taxed they're similarly facing this across our communities but you know there's more that can be done and needs to be done you know the small crimes are um, often going unreported that's very frustrating to small businesses in particular and when you talk about that, the repeat offenders, and again, we've seen uh, stories come uh, through uh, even police releasing, talking about an arrest, and then there'll be a line in it saying uh, this person has been arrested more than 100 times for similar uh, allegations of shoplifting, um, and, and that it's it's a small percentage of, of people that are responsible for a large percentage of the crimes that take place. Uh, but but clearly, people there are people that aren't afraid of any, uh, any kind of repercussions, and Again, I'll use the example of uh, in Nanaimo, a a couple literally drove away in the middle of the day with a a giant TV that they tossed on the top of their car. They were on camera, tossed it on the car and drove away. Yeah, clearly they felt they could get away with it. Our experience is that in the main, these are repeat offenders, as you said. Um, That's where our greatest concern is that a small number of people are are resulting in most of this cost. And I think a lot of Canadians aren't aware that a lot of this is is related to organized crime. A lot of these, you know, the theft particularly of high-end goods, of high dollar value goods, you know, is spurring other crime. And so we're grateful to the work of police forces. The Vancouver Police Force has had two recent blitzes on, on shoplifting but um, and that retail theft, but this is simply a problem that has gotten out of proportion and it's damaging the experience and, and you know, impacting us all financially. And you talk about the blitzes and uh, police releasing those numbers and, and just uh, recently as well, I know there was a shoplifting blitz in West Vancouver at, at Park, Park Royal Mall and they uh, made several arrests. I think there were seven arrests that were made in that one day That one day blitz. Uh, you, you mentioned kind of the, the bigger picture on this and, and why this is happening or where it's going. So is it mainly, do you think, uh, organize, much more organized and it's part of a bigger operation in, in that I know there are cases where we see people at a grocery store that are, are, are saying, not, and again, not that it's really justifiable, but are saying we're stealing because we're starving. We're stealing because we need this food. This is the only way we're going to get this food. Is it is it people stealing for their own, for themselves, or, or part of a bigger operation? You know, our experience is that the people who are stealing for themselves are a small part of the picture. Um, it's the organized theft for resale that is a bigger part of the picture, you know, but still... The impact of everybody who shoplifts or everybody who steals is felt by all of the rest of us. Oh, well, it uh, definitely is uh, certainly a problem. And again, that number of 300%, it just it just is kind of mind-boggling to think of, of the fact that it's that bad and it appears to only uh, be getting worse. So we'll have to leave it there for today. But Greg, as always, thank you for coming on the show. And thanks for talking more about this. Well, thank you, Jim. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.